Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and this is the 73rd program in this series. In this program, I'm at the end of John chapter 13. This was during the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples, and Jesus exposed the person who was going to betray him, Judas, gave him a piece of bread, and then told him to go out and do whatever he was going to go and do. And in verse 31, this is John chapter 13, Verse 31, it says, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. There is definitely a lot of glorification going on here, where we have the Son of Man being glorified. We have a lot of hymns. There is a lot of glorification taking place. Now, it can be easy to look at verse 31 and 32 and kind of get lost in all the glorifications that are going on here. But it really isn't that complicated. It's just a sophisticated word in order to express the idea that God is going to be known, that the Son of Man is going to be known. All that Jesus is really communicating here is that because of what is going on, because of this circumstance, there is now another opportunity for people to know their God and to know the one who he sent, the Lord Jesus. And this is expressed in multiple parts, multiple parts in the sense of the Son of Man, the Father, God himself, We have a lot of parts that collectively represent a single revelation or a single person to reveal the living God in multiple ways so that he can be known. And because of the depths of who he is, the magnitude through which he can be known, he has to be known in small parts, in small pieces, in multiple ways not to be able to capture the fullness of who he is, but at least to be able to capture and comprehend some parts of who he is so that we can grow to know him a little bit at a time. So again, in verse 31, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. It's another way of saying that now the Son of Man is going to be known, and God is going to be known in him, within him, through him, because of him. Continuing into verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Immediately in the sense that we don't have to wait, 
but this is also a continual revelation of who he is throughout the generations since this took place. In every generation, new people discover who their God is, discover what he accomplished and how he did the things that he did. And so the immediate revelation was something that took place then and continues to echo throughout the course of history and will continue to be experienced by people as long as the Lord allows us to continue to use this world that he created in the way that we are. Continuing into verse 33, it says, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and then he goes on from there, I'm going to pause on verse 34 and 35 and go to verse 36 to see how Peter responds to what Jesus said here in verse 33, where he says, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And just as he said to the Jews before, now these disciples are Jews also, but just as he told the unbelievers before, just as he told the people who rejected him before, so they also are going to be in the same situation where Jesus is going to go somewhere and they are not going to be able to go where he is going. They will be able to go there later, but they're not going to go there anytime soon. Now, there is a lot that we can learn about our God through what Jesus expresses here. He expresses the fact that his disciples are in a similar situation as all other unbelievers in this context, that Jesus is going to go somewhere that not even they can go to. They will be able to go later, but in order to experience that, there will have to be a change. There will have to be a change of some kind so that they will have access to where he is going. Now, some have suggested that perhaps Jesus went into the depths of hell temporarily, and the disciples are not going to be able to go there. The Jews suspected that maybe he was going to go to hell, and that that was why they wouldn't be able to go where he was going, because of course they're not going to go there. This is something that some people believe Jesus was conveying. I personally don't see that here. What I see here is that Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of heaven, especially if you continue to see what he had to say. He was speaking about going to the kingdom of heaven, specifically the temple, the true temple of the living God. And this was expressed very well through the letter to the Hebrews when it came to the topic of what Jesus accomplished at the true altar of God through presenting his blood for the sins of the world On the true altar, the real altar, not the one that was a copy of that which is in the temple of God in his kingdom in heaven. This is different, and this is a place where we know that Jesus went. We know that he went there, and we also know that he went there by himself. He didn't bring anybody else there with him. And so this is a place that would definitely qualify as a place where he is going to go 
that his disciples are not going to be able to go to yet, but later on, they will be able to go there. Continuing on into verse 36, I'm going to pass over verses 34 and 35 for just a moment. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, The rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. This was Jesus' response to Peter's enthusiasm in wanting to go where Jesus was going. But Jesus makes it clear to him that he will be able to go there later in verse 36. But you shall follow me afterward. There will come a time when you will go, but it is not now. So based on this, I think it's reasonable to say that this place is a positive place. This is a place that Peter really does want to go to, and he will be there eventually, just not right now. Now, there is a lot that we can learn about this delay, about the fact that Jesus is going to go without them, but they will be able to see him at a later date. There is a lot that we can see about this, that we can learn about this. I think the most important thing for us to see is that our God wants to live our lives with a sense of partial independence. Partial independence in the sense that he certainly does want us to live in a dependent relationship on him. But that doesn't mean that we cannot live or that he doesn't want us to live our lives with some sense of independence either. In this case, Jesus is going to go somewhere else and they are not going to be able to go where he is going. He's going to leave them to their own lives, to live independently. This is something that he wants and this is good for us to live our lives to a degree with a sense of independence from our God, from the Lord Jesus. This is something that we can see from this passage and from the way that Jesus relates to his disciples, that this is something that he wants us to have, he wants us to experience, and there will be wonderful opportunities for us to grow and to mature through our living our lives with a partial sense of independence from our God. Peter has been with Jesus for a long time, several years from what we can tell. And considering how much time Peter has spent with Jesus, when Jesus said, You are going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. That speaks a lot. That says a lot about the fact that even though Peter was with Jesus for all of this time, in his presence, 
walking with him, talking with him, eating with him, working with him, doing so much with him in the flesh, in person. And yet by morning, he's going to deny him three times. This to me is a way of understanding that even if Jesus is physically present in their lives, that doesn't mean that they are going to experience a profound sense of change and growth. And this is one of the ways that it could be measured. Will you deny Jesus or not? Three times even. Obviously, for Peter to get to a point where he would not be willing to deny Jesus at least once, for him to get to that point, this is going to require some more time. And you could also suggest that the other disciples were in a similar condition. And we might want to believe that because Jesus was physically present with them all this time, that that would automatically do it. But no, no, it did not. It was much later, much later, many years later, when Peter was confronted again about his faith, whether or not he would deny Jesus. It was much later that he was confronted with this, and because he refused to deny Jesus, to reject his God, because he refused to do that, he was killed. But this happened many years later, and during that time, Jesus was not physically present with him. He was present with him in the context of the Holy Spirit, and we do know that there were many opportunities when Jesus did relate to him in a personal way. But what I want you to understand is that the real change, the real transformation, happened over the period of time when Jesus was not physically present in Peter's life. And that this is something that I think we should really pay attention to. Because this is what we experience today. We don't see Jesus present, physically present in our lives like he was in the lives of the disciples during the time when this history was recorded. That's not how Jesus relates to us now. And there are many of us, many believers... Throughout the history of the church, since the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, there have been many believers, many people, who have experienced profound change and transformation in their lives to the point where they certainly would not deny Jesus. This is a struggle for everyone to go through. I myself will confess that in the first few years of my belief in Christ Jesus, I would not be willing to die for my faith. I certainly would be willing to die for my faith now. And this, to me, is a way of understanding that I have grown, that I have changed, that I have matured, and that this is something that took place over a period of time through a continual increase in the relationship that exists between myself and my God. And the convictions I have, the fortitude that I have, are not based on his physical presence in that sense, but are based on what is true. And he has shown himself to me in a real way outside of the physical manifestation. And this I value more than a physical manifestation that he may be gracious to do, but I still value the reality that I understand and the truth that I understand more
in the way that he has revealed himself to me in this day and age outside of a physical manifestation like he did with the disciples. There are some other things that we can learn from this. We can see that Jesus went and did things without his disciples. That he will live a life that is partially independent of us. Just as he would like us to live a life that is partially independent of him, so he will also live a life that is partially independent of us and of ours. And this is good. It is good for him to do this, that he can go and do things and relate to people and accomplish great things outside of our presence that just as we are free to live our lives apart from him, so he is also free to live his life apart from us. And this is good. It certainly gives us something to talk about later when we have opportunities to have conversations with him. And so instead of thinking about what we may not have, as his disciples were thinking about not having Jesus, we have an opportunity to think about what we could have and the positive things that can result from the decision that our God makes to not be as active in our lives as he was with the disciples. Now, going back up to verse 34, in verse 34, Jesus spoke to them and he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. All right, beginning in verse 34, he gives a new commandment. Now, we don't know if he was intending to say that this is going to be the only commandment from now on or if this is going to be an additional commandment to the commandments that were already present through the Old Covenant. This certainly would be a new one. There is one that is similar to this. This is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he said that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. But in this case, this is a little different because he says you are to love others as I have loved you. That certainly is a new one. And you have to wonder, is this going to be any easier to obey than any of the others? I mean, if you consider the commandment that you are to love your neighbor as yourself, how are you doing with that? I think it's reasonable to understand that you certainly are not living in obedience to that commandment. No one is able to accomplish that to the satisfaction of God. So how do you think we're going to do if we're going to love others with the love of God? If we can't even love others with ours, we can't love others perfectly with the love that we have for ourselves. So how is it that we are going to love others with the love of God? Now, I understand that some people might feel encouraged by this, the idea that, well, we have a different commandment now and we can love others as God loves us. But you give it a try. You try that out and see how far you get. This is something that I think can be difficult, and perhaps we should be concerned about this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you. 
that you also love one another. There is an expectation that we are going to love others as God loves. I would venture to say that that would be impossible. But this does not mean that there will be no love expressed at all. What I am expressing is the idea that you're not going to be able to go before Jesus and say, well, you know what? I did it. I did it. I loved all the others just as you loved me. I did. I succeeded in that. You're not going to be able to make that claim. But there is some truth that can be found here that there will be opportunities for us to love others with the love that we have received from our God. But to fulfill this to the extent of perfection certainly is not going to take place. How could it be that we would be able to love others as he has loved us? Well, the only way that we can possibly experience this is if we begin with an understanding of how he loves us. This is important to define. You will find that there are many different definitions of what it means for God to love us. For example, we could say that God has loved us by giving us his commandments. So, we will love others by giving them the commandments that God gave us. And of course, what goes along with the commandments is the punishment. And when we fail to obey our God, well, he doesn't cause his face to shine upon us. He's not going to like us very much. He's going to expect some confession, some repentance, perhaps some kind of sacrificial offering. When we establish this kind of a definition for the love of God, then we are going to love others with that definition. We will give them the commandments. And if these people fail to obey the commandments that we give them, well, then we have we have a responsibility to be angry with them, to be upset with them, to be disgusted with them, and to expect them to confess and repent. Otherwise, we might need to remind them on occasion that they are evil. And this is the kind of love that people will tend to share, if that's what they think the love of God is. Others may take the position that the love of God has to do with a complete denial of reality. No one will ever be punished for their sin. Therefore, God loves regardless and he lives in a continual, perpetual, eternal state of denial of any sin that may exist. All that he says to people is good and pleasant and under no circumstances will he hurt the feelings of anyone at all. That this is the definition that people have of the love of God. And so, well, how is that going to work out? Does this mean that you now have to relate to other people in the same way, to live in a denial of any, any sin that may come out of anyone? And you are to always speak kindly, speak nicely, never make others feel bad at all. If that is your definition, chances are you're not going to be able to fulfill that one either. The definition of the love of God is something for us to grow in our understanding of. 
it is not possible to establish a short definition of what this means. What we can do is discover a little bit about what it means for our God to love us and for us to live our lives with the love that he does give to us that we can understand. And when we have that love given to us by him, then we will have something that on occasion we will be able to share with others. And this is a living experience. This is part of our lives. This is one of the great things about being left here without Jesus physically present so that we can live our lives and experience the love of God for ourselves and have opportunities to express the love of God towards others. And in this transaction, we will grow. We will mature. We will know our God more. And I will continue with this in the next program. Thank you for listening. This is the 73rd program in the verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. In this program, I was in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. I was completing John, chapter 13. In the next program, I will revisit verse 34 and 35 a little bit more. But in this program, we see the beginning of the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples at the end of the Last Supper. And in this conversation, Jesus tells them that he is going to go away. One of the things that we can see about the value of him going away is we can see the change that will happen with Peter over time. That by morning, he is going to deny Jesus three times. But at the end of his life, he would rather die than to deny Jesus. So Jesus being absent provided Peter with an opportunity to grow in his understanding of the love of God to the extent that it certainly did make a change in who he is. And I will continue with this in the next program. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net